I would, yeah, that's good. <clears throat> Okay, we'll you want to present it last time? Last time? Yeah. Um, okay, I think we'll start while we wait for others to join in. Okay. Um, thank you for taking our time out of your busy schedule to join us tonight. Um, I said we'll continue on the topic changing the narrative. And so this is the fifth edition of that. And so we have wonderful guest speakers tonight. So Dr. Wanda, thank you for taking our time to join us. So she is the executive director of Equality Trust and also Louisa as well. Um, so she, she is uh, the director of Being to Board um, organization. Thank you for taking our time to join tonight. It's a very busy schedule. Um, I would admit more people in as we go along. And so last fortnight, we focused on changing the narrative, but I think we focused on the black female gender, right? So there was this question that was raised by the audience. So our audience is, uh, we engage with them on all social media platform. And there was this question that was raised from the audience um, relating to BAME inequalities. How do we begin to bridge that gap? What do we begin, what do we do as an organization? And so I have two amazing ladies tonight. So Dr. Wanda, she's very much into this as well. And also Louisa. Uh, so before we dive into the question, um, Dr. Wanda, I just want to, um, let you speak about what you do, what your organization is all about, and how you have, um, because you've had so many uh, discussions about equality and inequalities within the BAME communities and also as a whole. Uh, if you'd like to kind of just tell us what your organization is all about and how have you, what you do really, and how you, um, kind of engage with the society a little bit more okay yeah sure thanks for inviting me um it's really really great to be able to have this platform and to speak about our work so at the equality trust we were founded about 10 years ago um by two academics who wrote a book called the spirit level um kate pickett and richard wilkinson both professors and the research that they looked at showed that in countries with high levels of income inequality, so a huge gap in between people's incomes, you also see higher levels of mental and physical ill health, higher levels of obesity, of teenage pregnancy, of drug and alcohol addiction, of violence, um, of incarceration. So all of those things that we see much more of sort of lower down the economic scale. So of course that means that, you know, in countries that are more equal, and when I say equal here, I'm talking about income inequality, um, the Scandinavian countries, for example, those rates um, for those issues are much, much lower. So, you know, therefore, the, the organization was set up to... So four years ago, almost exactly to the day, actually, <laughs> I took over the Equality Trust. And because 
my background was very much in looking at inequalities in terms of race and gender um, and other protected characteristics, then of course, when we look at the evidence, we can see that, you know, we can see who, who is lower down in the income um, streams and who is more likely to some, and COVID of course has absolutely demonstrated that this is true. So we know there are different effects on women. We know there are different effects on black and minority ethnic people. We know that these are different depending on different areas and depending on, on different communities. But we know that the picture really is not just about race or ethnicity. It's also about the wider determinants of our society, the wider conditions we find ourselves in. So it's about housing. It's about, so it's about inequality in housing. It's about inequality in education inequality in work and the labour market um, before we even start to talk about outright discrimination, structural um, racism and institutional racism. So these structural inequalities um, that have been built really, they are the foundations of capitalism. You know, capitalism was built off the back and the labour of slavery, obviously, but also of oppressing women. So when we look at all of these issues and we see the situation that we're in now, what we try to do is to A, widen awareness and broaden awareness and work with lots of different organizations especially in the charity sector but also in education to make people more aware of these issues so that they can join us campaigning so some of the things i'm most proud of that we've done as an organization really are um working with a group of young people and um from four different youth groups in london and they got to meet the un special rapporteur on extreme poverty when he visited a couple of years ago and to walk into a room and see 25 young people telling him you know this international expert about what poverty meant to them the mm. racial dimensions of it the housing dimensions of it mm. all of these different and and gender as well all of these different issues we had a group of learning disabled young people there and a group of people who had un, un um, recognized status etc so just for them to be listened to and believed, you know, because we live in a culture where many people have to try and prove, you know, that they either have a right to, to welfare or the, to housing. For them to be listened to at that highest level was probably one of the things that I'm most proud of. But they've gone on to sort of save their youth centre, to appear in The Guardian on Radio 4 and campaign in their own right. And that has been really, really inspiring. Because I think when we look at what young people are going through right now, we can see that they need to realize that it hasn't always been this way this country hasn't always been so unequal um, and we're seeing them unlock their own power and their ability to campaign to have a voice and to speak out on issues and that's really really encouraging so some of the other issues we work on is of course you know ceo to worker pay we work on gender pay gaps um, and ethnicity pay gap and we also work um, with local councils so we have a manifesto for local councils that are 15 things they can do to reduce inequality in their area so really we're trying to raise awareness of the damage that inequality does because we live in a country with very very high levels of inequality and covid is obviously exacerbating that um, but also to encourage people to take action and to also obviously influence government and the media on that okay okay Thanks for that. I think we'll come back to you in a minute. Um, so, Louisa, you're into projects as well. Do you want to just share light on what you do? Um, so you run this beam to board, right, organization. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? 
Thank you, Matilda. Wow, um, Vonda, that's amazing, the work that you do. I think, um, I think as you said, COVID has highlighted um, so many inequalities, but your research and the work that you've done and being able to empower young people is really so important right now. I think definitely with everything that's going on and with the education debacle <laughs> um, more recently. Um, so as Matilda said, um, I am the founder at um, Came to Boardroom and um, essentially I see myself as a, um, a leader of like um, black and Asian progression in, in the UK workforce. I started the company only last year after working for 17 years in a, in a corporate um, organization and um, my roles are a number of roles across HR, everything from operational management to talent management. Um, and I think where I um, found the most reward was when I was supporting a lot of our Black and Asian colleagues, um, setting up the diversity council within the, this company, um, working with people to develop steering groups for BAME, um, for gender, and also for parents and carers. Um, in particular, the uh, BAME uh, mentoring circle was particularly inspirational, helping to support those guys who wanted to go from frontline management roles, you know, further up in the organization. And um, I understood what my um, experiences were as a, as a black woman in that environment and the struggles and the microaggressions and the, the constant having to battle to get where you want to go and, um, you know, uh, checking yourself and monitoring everything you did, what you say and, you know, and code switching. So I understood what my experiences were. So I wanted to understand if it was the same for, um, for other people, other Black and Asian people, you know, who were in leadership roles. How did they cope? What did they do? What were their successes, etc.? So I started doing a, um, an interview a series called um, Why We Need to Get Comfortable Talking About uh, Race at Work. And so during those interviews, I got some in insightful um, messaging and experiences from those guys, which I now share on social media. But I think most of the key things that came out was about building confidence in yourself, about mentorship and um, sponsoring and how important that is in your career, having somebody to advocate for you, um, talking about um, how you need to stay um, resilient, being able to bounce back, understanding what your value is, all those kinds of stuff. So based on those conversations, I decided to set up um, Bame to Boardroom and it's a, a coaching, mentoring, um, programs that I work with individuals and I also work with organizations. Now, the, the, um, with what's happening around um, more recently in America and across the globe and Black Lives Matter, um, I've had more conversations with um, employers as well as individuals. And I think the key thing is that many people want to build up momentum and make the change that we all hope we can start to see happening. Um, and so that is about starting the conversation about race at work, about inequalities, about minorities. And so uh, my work is, is around that really, trying to get the conversation started about race at work and also to help to develop um, be black and Asian people so that they're, they're ready. So that when we have those positions, those opportunities that people feel confident enough to put their hands up and say, yeah, I'm ready to do this, I can do this really well. I think there's a lot of people who struggle with that imposter syndrome and that comes through comes through in um, because there's a massive gap between you know the early careers part and then you go as you go higher up you, you get this ceiling and yes. 
people just bouncing their heads against the ceiling. And so it's making sure that organisations are working towards getting that diversity across the pipeline um, and also the culture, the culture within those organisations need to allow people to grow so that they can retain that talent. So that's what I do. Okay. Okay, thanks, Louisa. Um, so I think we might have, we'll come back to that, you know, leadership role in a minute, how that diversity and how limitations and how do we begin to break those barriers. And so, and um, because we're very conscious of time, we just, you know, get cracking with the questions. And so, um, Dr. Wanda, so I think the first question to you is, so how, with the work you've done so far, so how do you think we can begin to bring, bridge the gap and on inequalities with the aim to achieve equality across all sectors. I mean, across all sectors. So that's key, right? So I think there is some progression, there's some progress, but how do we begin to break those barriers so there's equality across all sectors? Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I don't think we're ever gonna get full equality. Yes. Um, you know, that is, if, we could spend the next four days deciding what equality means. So yeah. I'm not sure that's what, what I would be aiming for. Mm. Um, I think, you know, there are two ways of, of looking at this. One is that we become compliant with the system and we become what the system wants us to be in order to succeed within that system. Or we take the other option, which is that either we create our own systems or we try and dismantle the systems that are telling mm. us that, you know, we need to straighten our hair, we need to mm. do whatever, and we need mm. to, you know, mm. code switch and do all of these things. So I think there's battles at different levels, really, to be honest. I mean, one of the things I've been really encouraged by, and, and of course, um, Louisa just alluded to that, is, you know, we have been absolutely inundated over the summer by people wanting to talk to us because people have suddenly woken up to the fact that there is inequality and there is racism in the world. And, you know, I can sigh as much as I like, but we do have to seize this moment. And when big companies are thinking about what they can do, whether it's performative or whether it's not, um, you know, our approach, because we are we're working in this area as well, is if you want long-term change and you want to look at your structural issues, we are happy to work with you. And we will work with you on, on a long-term issue. What we won't do is come in for a month or so, write you a paper that goes back in your policy drawer, and then you can tick the box. Yeah. So I think it's really discerning who is actually up for real change. And because yeah. real change is about giving up power. And, yeah. you know, we have to ask ourselves a question, who is willing to give up power? And yeah. where is that power held? Um, mm. Rather than thinking about how you know we're going to fit in to access that power but mm. i think you know it's it's very much about the stage of people's lives that they're at and the confidence that they have as as louisa alluded to as well you know at different stages in your life you feel different levels of confidence in taking on some of mm. the system or taking on um some of the issues that we face mm. but mm. for me i think it really is about collective solidarity it's about finding people who you can work with to get mm -hmm. that change and also to know yourself you know as a as a black ceo of a charity i can quite legitimately um turn around and say i'm not going to talk about these issues my job is as director of the equality trust we talk mm -hmm. about particular issues mm -hmm. but we all have to make those decisions and say are we going to stand up some of us mm -hmm. will some of us won't and there are lots mm -hmm. of reasons why people mm -hmm. shouldn't feel pressurized into doing that but it's mm -hmm. taking the power that you have and thinking about how can I use this for the greater good? And mm -hmm. how can I be part of that change? And ensuring that this change is long-term, 
Yeah. You know, I, I tweeted something earlier today saying I've, I received three magazines today, all of which had about 300 times the number of black people in their photos. And it wasn't just stock photos. It was actual stories and things. I said, wow, I've never seen this before. You know, I've always looked at these magazines and thought I must get around to writing to them to complain. Will this still be the case a year from now, two years from now? Or is this just, you know, a moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you've said it. I think it's, again, taking the opportunity for the moment as well, because, again, I think everyone has woken up to the um, to the reality that, yes, that Black lives really matter. But, again, the question you said that, it would this be long-term? So I think the onus is, is on us to make sure we continue with the momentum. I think that's my passion as well, to continue to, with the conversation and with the momentum to push however it leads, whatever it leads to. And um, so Louisa, I'll come to you. So what are your views? So how do you think we can begin to bridge the gap? Um, I think I did stress across the sectors, I know yeah. challenges, but in your own view, but how do you see that? I think, as Wanda said, I think you have to start with acknowledging, first of all, that there is an issue with racism. Uh-huh. Um, so, um, as I said, I've started getting loads of inquiries coming through, which is great. But I get the feeling that from some organisations that actually it is they just want to be seen to be doing something. Um, <laughs> so they reach out and ask for proposals. Um but then you ask them, so what's the vision? Where are you with your numbers? And the detail isn't there. Um, and so you wonder if you haven't started to collect the data or made any attempt to get the data around your ethnicity or the ethnicity pay gap, um, if you haven't actually communicated any messaging at all to employees around the issue of Black Lives Matter or, or what's mm. happening across the globe about this issue uh, and you don't have a a position on it then how committed are you so I think there's a lot of organizations who need to you know have a a look in the mirror and actually start acknowledging that there is an issue and if they have if they're not aware of the issue then at least do something to start finding out Mm -hmm. Um, talking to their employees having those listening sessions and that's not to say all of them are like that some of them are just you know trying their very best, they're doing lots of the listening sessions, they're inviting people to talk about their lived experiences, they're reaching out to all of the HR teams to support and um, and they're trying to make changes, they're reviewing their DNI um, structure, those sorts of things. But I think essentially in terms of making the change holistically, I think we need to start from the very beginning. So in terms of our society, we need to ensure that families have the resources for childcare, particularly as many of the Black and Asian minority people are in frontline working roles, how can they afford the childcare? Because that's a real issue to start with. Then ensuring community support is there for vulnerable families, making sure kids have adequate support um, for additional tutoring schemes in poor socioeconomic areas. So for example, in Woolwich where I live, before um, lockdown, um, I was taking my daughter to a tutor And in the library, there were lots of black groups of people who were tutoring people of colour because I don't think that we're getting what we need from our current uh, educational system to support our 
our communities and so people are forking out the money extra money on top of their you know going to school to make sure that their kids are on the same level playing field um, mm -hmm. as their counterparts in schools but not every family has that extra budget to do that so i think there's something around ensuring where there is a need that something is done to support that i think that with the covid19 and the issue around education and the equipment that many kids the government said that they were going to supply all of these laptops to kids who needed them that didn't happen why didn't it happen? Yeah. <laughs> we weren't that committed to it and so you know, yeah. those, that's where those kids are now who, you know, four months behind as opposed to their counterparts who might be three or two months behind because they haven't got equipment. And then you talk about young people from different backgrounds. When they're in college and universities, are they getting the support and mentoring that they need? Are they being prepared for actually work life? Because when I was working in uh, the corporate position, I used to manage all of the early careers people, graduates and apprentices. And where they were, you know, they were really talented young people, where their struggle was learning the soft skills, they were not prepared for work life, they were not able to articulate themselves in the way that you, the leaders within that organisation wanted it to happen. So if the organisation is not prepared to invest in that kind of training and development, we need to make sure it's there for them somewhere else. Um, and then you move it on to mentors in school, I think we need schools to be connected with organisations, I think, where you've got people in roles like mine and um, and Vanders is that we're going out and we're mentoring young people in education and then obviously there's the, the stuff around regular reviews of recruitment once you get into an organization recruitment attraction onboarding the development the promotion all of those processes within organization needs some kind of review and you know even the exit strategy because very often if you do those interviews um, of, of being people who have left leadership roles is very often because the culture is not right. So why is the culture mm -hmm. not right? But if people don't do that exit interview, they don't have the data to support any change. And mm -hmm. so you can in this cycle. So yeah, so those are some of the things I think. I think we, but only then can we kind of hope to achieve some fair representation is when we start addressing all of those things. There is no pipeline, there's no real commitment to building that um, black and Asian minority pipeline, even though I think it was the McKinsey report that says there's like potential 24 billion pounds that could be um, added to the GDP in the UK every single year. And, and we're not, you know, no one's sort of like, this is massive. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Louisa. Um, any comments from anyone? Akan, do you have anything before? We move to the next question. Akan, you're mute. <laughs> Akan, can you unmute yourself? Yeah, oh. Yes, I have now, thanks. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, thanks Wanda and Lisa for your wonderful presentation and uh, to Wanda for acknowledging that we will never get full equality. Um, with that, um, would I say acceptance or cognizance of that fact? My, my question is, and um, we would want to get into the top positions and then there have been a lot of statements in recent times, not knowing whether they are pandering to uh, the political um, to the uh, movement regarding regarding black lives about how they intend to accommodate a lot more 
people of uh, black and ethnic minorities in top positions. My challenge and question is this, how do we even get shortlisted into those positions? I mean, it's a different thing if you get interviewed. Mm. Sorry, how do you get the, what? The main challenge is, so I say it's, it's, a, it's a good thing if you eventually get shortlisted or invited for an interview for any top position. My challenge is how do you get cross, how do you get past the algorithm or whatever they use that wouldn't even allow you put your foot in? Mm. So yeah. you don't even get the chance to be interviewed. I mean, you don't even get the chance to get your CV across. I mean, mm. to get past the screening level. I mean, how do we even overcome that obstacle? That's one. And then secondly, how do we manage this movement? You can look at the Black Lives Matter. I mean, at some point, a lot of sympathy and empathy, but then it gets so violent, it gets sort of uh, not well managed, and you find people who initially had indicated interest or had shown sympathy to it, sort of uh, pulling back. So how do we manage this movement to make sure we can, mm -hmm. can find the right support so that we can give the traction it deserves? Mm. Yeah, Louisa, did you get the first question? I think in terms of the um, the algorithms, the recruitment piece. When when I worked in the corporate environment, we we reviewed all of our recruitment processes, and the reason we reviewed it is because we did some analysis. So I was interested to know why so many um, black and Asian minorities were dropping out after, say, um, the um, numeracy. Um, tests, for example. So they have mm. several tests that you do, including a psychometric test. Mm. And um, we found out that as soon as people, uh, the, the, almost 50% of Black and Asian minority ethnic um, applicants dropped out at that first stage. So we had to look and see, at, is the test biased in some way? And in the end, we decided to either change the, uh, the level that people had to, um, to reach. I think you had to reach at least um, sixty percent. We lowered that so that we could get more of those people coming through. Mm -hmm. But we're not really weren't clear as to the detail as to why that was happening. And even though there's uh, quite a few research saying that um, African Caribbean people um, tend to struggle with um, numeracy for some reason, we could we didn't go deeper than that. Only that what we looked at what we could do to actively do some positive action to allow that breakthrough. In terms of the algorithms now, when you're applying for an application, um, I, I don't have the answer to that one, I'm afraid, in terms of how do you get through. I think the key, I think it's key words is what most of the algorithms are looking at, whatever role you're applying for. But I don't have enough information about that to, to give you an answer that to, you know, a full answer to that question. Mm. Mm. Okay. So, Wanda, do you want to help with the second question or we move? Yeah, well, I'll have a take, take on the first one as well. I mean, I think we've okay. all been aware of the, the power and the problems of algorithms over the past couple of months with the education system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a huge debate about who's setting the algorithms, what they're reproducing. If they're reproducing past behaviour um, and previous evidence, then that's very heavily skewed against black and asian people um for example um and i think you know I, d I don't think that's a helpful way to do it i think the issue of psychometric testing is also 
um, another issue in terms of we know with with IQ tests these things are culturally relevant um, to certain cultures and value particular things and I think if we go right back to jobs we need to ask what do we actually need people to be able to do in order to do that job do we need them to have a degree do we need them to have particular um, qualifications just to do the actual job and we need to really go back to the job descriptions and the job job requirements which is what a lot of organizations are, are trying to do now which is good and I think you know we have to look at the way that top positions are recruited they're mainly recruited by headhunters mm. and even you know the the recruitment agency that claims to be you know really really hot on diversity has very few non-white partners Mm. So, you know, I have had this experience over the last four years since I since I got this job um, of working with a lot of different recruitment agencies, some of whom are better than others. But there is also um, there's the reverse problem, Akan, when you find yourself being invited to apply for jobs and on short lists because they want to show that they can get diverse people in the room. And so it becomes really difficult to think, actually, do they are they just putting me on the short list? Mm. or is this a job I really want and I really could do so you know you almost become trapped by your own success in a sense then yeah. and that's really really a difficult place to be so you know it's the whole way that's done and that relies on networks it relies on people saying you know oh do you know someone who would be good um, and it's these hidden networks that we very often don't see one of the things I think is really important to think about is and this is something I will always ask when I'm working with people is do you just want more black and brown faces or do you actually want people from different socioeconomic backgrounds mm -hmm. because you can have a room full of people that look very diverse but if they've all been to eton or they've all been to winchester or they've all been to the same public schools then they will all be thinking more or less in the same way so yes you can have that physical diversity but it doesn't mean that people are you're actually going to have a have a proper diversity so do they actually do they really want you know someone who's come from a different socioeconomic background or do they just want someone who has a different color of skin so you have to you know think about that and whether they're just looking at the optics um and the other issues with recruitment agencies of course are the issues around salaries salaries not being advertised or salaries being advertised in a range which we know reproduces discrimination within a labor market as well as gender pay gaps and ethnic mm -hmm. minority pay gaps so it's a much more complex issue than us not just getting um, mm -hmm. into those jobs um, mm -hmm. there are a lot of different reasons why and plus we know in a charity sector that I think it's something like 94% of or 96% of boards are all white and the boards are very very cautious mm -hmm. and so they tend to think of a CEO still as a man in a suit a white mm. man in a suit probably in yeah. his 50s they may yeah. just about be able to stretch themselves to think about a woman in that position <laughs> but they don't necessarily think that you or i look like the ceo despite mm -hmm. all of their we want to change we want to change this organization mm -hmm. so it's 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 a much more complex issue i think mm -hmm. in terms of black lives matters and the movement whenever you have a huge civil movement like this nobody it's not all going in the same direction People join for different reasons. People have different visions. People want to see something different. And it's one of the problems, how to keep a movement on track to actually achieve something. I mean, somebody, a, a white colleague said to me, oh, I wish Black Lives Matters would just say, you know, this is what we want. This is one thing that we want. And I, I had to really sort of count to 10, you know, before I answered that. It was a sort of, well, well what do they want? And I thought, mm -hmm. I do not have the time or the patience. You're an mm -hmm. educated woman. 
you know, go and find out for yourself. But it is a problem because it's also within some people's interest to discredit the movement. And you can see how that's playing out in America, um, especially in election year. So whenever you have a big movement like this, there is always somebody who will think, how can we take advantage of this? How can we skew this? How can we make them? You know, the, the shooting the shooting of, um, and now this feels awful, is it Jacob? Jacob Blake. Jacob Blake, yeah. Sorry, I mean, this is a really awful thing to say, but there have been so many of these lately that I am now forgetting names, and that is awful. <laughs> that is not a position that anybody wants to be in. But Jacob Blake shooting, very quickly, the focus moved to the movement mm. and to what was happening on the streets. Mm. And within, you know, maybe half a day, nobody was talking about Jacob Blake anymore. Mm. You know, nobody was talking about the fact that he was paralysed from the waist down and handcuffed to a bed. Mm. Mm. You know, nobody was talking about that. They were talking about what they were calling rioting, what others mm. might call protesting. And that is one of always one of the dangers with a movement mm. of this mm. And mm. also that it's become corporatized. Mm. You know, when we saw all of the big companies jumping on the bandwagon with their black tiles and their statements, mm. you know, it becomes in, cap- in a capitalist society, it becomes something that we can make money out of. Yeah. yeah. And this, is, you know, this again is a danger. We have to keep mm. true yeah. to what the movement can be. But yeah. it, will, it will be difficult. This, this change is not easy. I mean, look at yeah. the civil rights movement. That was not an easy. It wasn't. And they still haven't achieved what they wanted to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's a long-term, long-term thing. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. You've just said it there, it's a long-term. And we're really cautious of time. Uh, so I think the next question is, um, what role do we need to play as individuals, as being people from the BIM community? What role do we need to play? So what one... Um, I, I I think as individuals, I think it's um, so. Uh, after the, uh, the 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 murder of George Floyd, I had lots of calls from individuals who are just like really upset about what happened, and some of them were people who were in senior roles in H HR roles, a lot of them, uh, or DNI roles, and they were saying that um, they had become really complacent. They had real, you know, they knew that there weren't enough diversity, but they hadn't done anything. And what Black Lives Matter did was allowed the focus and it made them think about what they should be doing differently. And I, I think it's about, if you're not currently um, challenging um, inequalities within your organizations and, and, you're, and you're not um, educating yourself, those are some of the things that you can do. So there's also people who are not black and were also ringing me up and saying, how can I be a better ally? You know, I'm not sure what it is I need to say to uh, to my colleagues. So it's about them, first of all, educating themselves. Like you said, mm-hmm. you, uh, you know, it wasn't your job to educate and you didn't have the time nor the patience. Um, some of those people were saying the same thing. I think we need to... Um, asking how we can do more within our environments but as you say it depends on what role you're doing what different stage of your um your your career you're in but mm-hmm. i think the opportunity um to be bold and to as we're in that momentum and people on it is we stand up and say things aren't right what are the things that i can be doing what can the organization be doing but you need to 
reach out and say, this, these are some of the things that I've witnessed, I've experienced, how can we make it better? Even if it's you know, joining different networks that you need to um, get allies, get support, reach out for people in senior roles to support what you're doing, um, advocating to, you know, advocating colleagues if you're in a senior role so that they can get the development they need to move on, mentoring other people and doing all of those things. You know, we need to first of all acknowledge that there is an issue across the organisation if you're in one. If you're somebody who's in your own business, it's what, what are you doing to support the community and um, to help it grow and, and be connected. I think there's something about strength in numbers. Uh, and if, um, as Wanda said, if you, we want to change the system or shake it up, we have to, although the burden is, the burden is ours, it shouldn't be ours, but we need to do, we need to be part of that change um, mm. in order to get it moving, I think. Mm, 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 mm. Okay. Okay. So I'll move quickly to Wanda. Wanda, in your views, what role do you think we need to play as individuals? I think really, first of all, we need to stop and think about whether we can play a role. Mm. Um, because, as I said before, you know, we, we all feel this burden. We all feel that, you know, we should be doing something, but there are people there, you know, we are going into a huge recession. There are people working two or three jobs, trying to look after their kids, put food on the table. We can't expect them to be out there on the front line all the time. So first of all, I think we have to be forgiving of other people and recognize that not everybody, everybody's going to play a different part. It may be signing a petition. It may be doing a tweet, maybe something small. It may be talking to your kids or talking to the, you know, mums and dads at the school and carers at the school gate but it is I think we've very much forgotten about word of mouth and the power of word of mouth because we've become very reliant and dependent on social media for our messages I think talking about people being the face of this change um, where we can but also thinking about where we can influence you know is it the school gate is it going to talk to the teacher um, is it talking to your own kids um, and their friends about things is it at a senior level but also recognize the price, you know, recognize the price that we are paying and we have to also think about our own self-care and not burn out. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, I was fortunate enough to be um, asked to do an interview for um, Sky News on Black Lives Matter on a protest. And I've done lots and lots of media interviews. I'm not phased by doing this sort of thing, but that night I really was because I thought this is probably one of the most important things to me in my life that I really care about. And I have this opportunity and I wanna make sure that I use it well. So when we yeah. do get these opportunities, we really take that time and make sure we are saying the things, the things that people will identify with. You know, Benjamin Zephaniah and, um, uh, John Amici last week on on the radio really put in the case so simply that you know we are walking the streets and scared for our lives in a very calm way you know not dramatizing it we are telling our children they can't go and get sweets past six o'clock in the evening or five o'clock in the evening or just go to the corner shop because it's dangerous you know do other people have to think about that in the way that women when they're walking down the street late at night you know you might yeah. have keys in your hand or you're thinking if somebody yeah. you know speeds up these sorts of things that we have to think about the conversations we have to have with our children that other people don't have to have and bringing it home to that personal personal level is really really important yeah yeah, yeah. so i'm also to wonder so i watched your interview on sky news so that's why you're here today so that's my confession <laughs> it was really brilliant 
And so we move on. <laughs> so we move on quickly to the next one. Back to you, Louisa. Um, how do organizations like yours begin to influence the government? Um, I think I have reached out to my, my local MP and, and, and asked him questions about what his office was doing to support his constituents and, um, mm -hmm. and offered my services to help him have those conversations um, within his constituency. So I asked him what people were writing to him about um, what they had done, because it was a, a, labor, a labor constituency over here, what he'd done to challenge some of the stuff that um, the government were proposing, i.e. Um, the racial inequalities um, uh, commission that had been commissioned that late review um, did they challenge it because currently you know we have there's so many reviews so many reports already been written about the inequalities um, racial inequalities what we need to do is see some action and I asked about what they were doing around that so I have reached out and asked how I might be able to support the community in terms of you know raising what you know discussing those key issues um, getting support from you know from you know uh, local um, councillors uh, from the police force within, within where we live and and work and and so that's that's what I've been doing in terms of trying to have those conversations. Yeah, yeah. So I think working with the community is key as well, isn't it? We have to start from the grassroots. So back to you, Wanda. Um, I know you're already doing some, but if you want to share more examples of what you're currently doing to influence the government. Yeah, well, we are the co-secretariat of the all-party parliamentary group on poverty, so we have access to a range of cross-party MPs through that. Um, but we've always been lobbying MPs of all parties um, to reduce inequality and to work on a lot of the issues around that. Um, we are fortunate in that we have been um, invited by the shadow ministers to, to talk about a variety of different things um, in the previous um, parliament and we are about to start briefing the, I keep saying new, it's not new from December is it, but um, the, um, the new semi-new intake. Um, and I think, you know, our lobbying is also done, let's not forget that there's not much bandwidth at national government at the moment, but there's a lot more in terms of devolved administrations, in terms of local government. So mm -hmm. we have about 20 local groups across the country and they will be lobbying local governments, local councils to get change in their, in their area. And I think it's, it's just really important to, to continue to raise these things in the media. For example, the, the latest commission um, that the Conservative government have set up, you know, we were very vociferous about um, our opinions in The Guardian and other places about the appointment mm. of Tony Sewell. Um, mm. You know, so we, we have opportunities to make our voices heard in a variety mm. of different ways, but also our supporters um, are able to obviously contact their MPs and we will lobby MPs and importantly civil servants as well, um, the decision makers okay. around um, around the government. Okay, okay, okay. Um, so, Akan, have you got any questions? Lucy, um, Doreen, any questions before we move to the last question of the day? Lucy? No? Akan, have you got any more questions? Well, mine wouldn't really be a question. I think it would be uh, more of an observation based 
based on what they've said, they've talked about um, uh, the, uh, what they're doing, engaging parliamentarians. I think that's a, that's a good step. It's something we still have to do. But in terms of um, um, employing people from the BEM community, I, uh, from experience, I believe government is the biggest culprit. I had spent uh, years in the um, corporate sector, mostly in the oil industry. It's a, it's a lot more diverse. But uh, I think since 2016, I've, I've been spending time a lot more in public uh, sector, doing a uh, contract project management. And I've been in the um, University of Hampton, been with NHS and now with Network Rail. Outside NHS and local councils, even the local councils, it's mainly around the social care sector. I don't think there's any public institution you really look, point to and say, well, that has accommodated a lot of urban communities. Even mm -hmm. in the network world that I work in, I mean, if you look at, uh, there's a team I belong to, to sort of a mid-management to top-management level. I think we are like about um, 30 something in that group that holds uh, monthly meetings. We are like, uh, I think three or four people from urban communities. And this is a very large government institution that you would think would accommodate a lot more people. You have a lot more of our people at the frontline level, people who work on the tracks. Mm. But how, what would they influence? They can't do anything. So I believe as you are pushing, it would be good to, to ask questions from people in government, to show you statistics of the people they're employing, to mm. show how, how many number of BEM, people from BEM community that they're employing. I remember when they were asking Matt Hancock also about mm. the number of people. They keep, they keep every day the points to, uh, the Chancellor and uh, um, Home Affairs or whatever, Home Secretary. Outside those two, other than the which other secretary, they can't really point to people. So it would be good when you're engaging these parliamentarians, if they, they can provide statistics, I think that would mm. be really helpful. Mm, mm, mm. Thank those statistics there, and the government, you know, the government itself has the ethnicity, um, there's a site where they have all of that information. But, you know, what I would say is that Yes, it's great to have evidence, and obviously we are an evidence-based organisation, but that doesn't sway hearts and minds in the sense, in the same way that stories and individual um, explanations and individual experience does, because I think, you know, we very much make the mistake of saying, well, if only people knew the statistics and knew this, that and the other, then they would change their minds or they'd act differently. It's far more complex than that. We do have all of the figures, you know, as Louisa said, we're having another commission. We have the reports, we have report after report after report and recommendations. What's missing is the political will to actually um, develop those recommendations and implement them. That's what's missing. There's no shortage of facts whatsoever. Mm, 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 yeah. yeah. So Lucy, do you have any comment or question? Um, I, I think mine is more of an observation because I, I've coming, I'm coming from the background that I work in construction. I work with a developer, a big developer, and most of the people that in my um, where I work, as well as a private company, even though they probably it's it's huge, isn't it? Got probably about over ten to fifteen thousand people across the um, different um, branches, and. At the front line, because obviously the site workers, the labourers are all, we have quite a good variety of BME, but in management, not only is it few blacks, I'm the only black woman. Mm -hmm. And 
because I've been in construction for so long, it's now the norm. Every time I'm the only black woman, only mm. black woman and black men, none. Mm. It's really, really disheartening because I'm thinking at this point in time, I started mm. with a background in architecture. And even then I was the only black woman in my class and I did suffer a lot. Before mm. then, I didn't really know what racism was like, but I had my, my lecturers were, were, one of them was quite racism, racist and just could not get around, um, apologies, couldn't, did, not want, did not want to believe that he would let, allow me graduate because he just didn't want, believe that a black woman could not, would want to go to school as opposed to going to have a baby outside wedlock. So mm. I, it started from a, a long time ago, but now in construction is worse because first you're female, they almost don't believe women should be in construction and then you're black. Mm -hmm. So even as quite recently, even from another woman who is English, she's she in her, I could tell from her mannerism, even mm. when she writes, she just is vehemently against the fact that I'm there, but she, all but saying it, she's, you can see it in the way she writes. And the problem is my management, immediate management, know she's been out of, out, out of order, or the directors who she just flies over the management and goes to speak to directors, they have no idea. So mm -hmm. how, how does one, how, how can it be, in, especially, I'm talking about the private sector now, because they're, they're autonomous, they, they, they don't depend on the government for anything, but mm -hmm. they're getting away with murder. Mm -hmm yeah yeah because this is a sector that people don't talk about yeah women yeah. in construction a minority yeah. and then a black woman in construction yeah 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 i think you've yeah i think it's that's another area to tackle on isn't it so i think from what the conversation we've heard as well so there's this need for the government to also push the private sector to to be more compliant isn't it to be more to i think there was this question about the gender pay, pay gap that was worn so there's this need exactly to exactly. push Precisely. and then obviously the, the the racial discrimination as well um so doreen do you have any comment before the last question for the day no okay so i'll come back to you louisa so louisa doreen you're mute. Do you want to unmute yourself? Unmute. Sorry, okay. sorry about that. <laughs> right. Oh, well, I'm just new to the uh, program. I'm just kind of, um, you know, trying to understand what's going on and, um, you know, trying to pick up some points as well. Um, but for now, I don't really think I have anything to say for okay. now. Um, okay. Possibly later. Yep. Okay. All right. Then. Thank you. Thank you. So right, to the last question to you, Louisa, what advice do you have for the young listeners out there? So what advice do you have for them? Yes, I've written down a few things, really. Um, forgive me if I just read what I've written down here. I think, I think it's really important um, that young people are, get some clarity around what their strengths are, what their development needs are, their values things that they're not going to compromise on and understand what their, some of their self-limiting beliefs uh, and address them with a bit of courage because I think very often, unless you tackle those, that impacts on your confidence at work. Um, I think um, understand and be able to articulate what you're good at, what your experience is, um, what's the value that you might be able to add to 
your team, your organisation, and that, again, will help to build your confidence. I think focus on your passions and your strengths and your talents, and I think that will enable career opportunities. Um, and in terms of development needs, I think we can't all be great at everything, so you have to focus on what you're good at. And, and, and if it's really imperative that you have a certain talent or a skill or you need to be good at something, try and get some mentoring or some coaching to make sure that it's no longer a barrier i think that um if you get if you get that and you focus on your strengths and your talent talents then it will accelerate accelerate in your performance and i think um as well as smart goals um i think we all know what smart goals are i think it's important for individuals to also have some dream goals in your career plan and Mm -hmm if those dream goals um, seem like they're a bit out of the way uh, or unreachable, connect with people who are already doing what you want to do. Um, Connect with people who have similar values to you and characteristics. And I think most importantly that young people need to have uh, developers mindset. So even though right now there's a recession on its way and there's lack of jobs, I think it's really important that you have a success mindset and, Mm. and try that will help develop your confidence. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Louisa. So to you, Dr. Wanda, what what advice do you have for the young listeners out there? I think it's really important to understand the system that we're in um, Mm. and how it shapes our society and those historical problems that have led us and our communities to where many of us are now. And the reason I think that's really important is not only because I'm a historian, so I would always say you need to know your history, um, but also because it means that the burden is lifted from them. It's not your fault if you're in a bad situation or your family is, or you know there's unemployment or bad housing or any of these issues, because the system has a vested interest in keeping our communities in these situations Mm. and so once we realize that it's not our failing it's not that we didn't work hard enough or we didn't Mm. you know we weren't clever enough or we didn't put in the hours because you know people are doing that but that there are structural inequalities built into the system then we begin to look broader and see who can we ally with who else is being oppressed by this system so we look at it through the lens of gender or we look at it through the lens of race we look at it through the lens of you know geography where there are different opportunities and then we start to think about collective action and solidarity and being together and not continuously being in competition with each other to be the best to get those very very small golden opportunities that are held out to us so that people can then say look that black person over there managed to go from peckham to parliament you know if they can do it you can do it we are exceptions we have to remember this and we have to make sure that we build up those opportunities for others so that it isn't exceptional i think it again you know it's find your passion find something that you really care about stick at the things that you're really good at and how you bounce back you know failure is always a teacher a great teacher and it's how you fail i have failed in so many areas of my life it's unbelievable in many different careers but i have learned so much from that and on a very practical level i would say you know in this day and age and what we're coming into is that young people need to know their rights not just their rights under things like stop and search but their employment rights so talking to sorry the lady who works in construction You know, there's a whole raft of equality and discrimination law, which I'm sure you're aware of, but you're also aware of the price that you might pay if you do take your employer 
to court. Mm. You know, mm. if you do take your employer to tribunal, you will mm. end up with no job and you will literally be blacklisted in that, you know, so we have to know what our rights are, but we have to know when we want to use them. And I yeah. would say, you know, it's part of the work we're trying to do, know your employment rights, know your human rights and be equipped to know that, you know, people can't necessarily treat you in the ways that they think they can treat you and also know where the power is. Mm. Because when you know where the power is, then you can make informed decisions about mm. potentially trying to change that. Mm. Wow, thank you. And I did promise it was going to just be an hour conversation tonight. I wish we could, <laughs> <laughs> but that's it for tonight. Um, so I think you've said it all, and uh, Louisa, know your allies. And one, one day you said, know your passion and know your rights, understand the system as well. Um, so thank you again, and thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Akan. Thank you, Doreen. I know it was a fast one tonight, so thank you. And also, uh, Taiwo as well. Thank you for taking our time as well. Um, I, I'm hoping we could, you know, have a conversation, Wanda, uh, out of this meeting, just so I get to know what you do as well, and also Louisa as well. Thank you for taking our time, and we will have another discussion in two weeks' time. But that's it for tonight. Have a nice weekend and stay safe. All right. Bye. Yes. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye.